If this life is driving you to drink, you're sitting around wondering just what to think. Well, I got some consolation. I'll give it to you if I might. You know I don't worry about a thing, cause I know nothing's gonna be Hello, I'm Ellie Mayo Hagen. And I'm Owen Jones. And this is Agitpod, our Once Upon a Time podcast. Right, to be fair, yeah, it's I'm sorry we've not we've not not been around. We do have a good reason though. Yeah we do, yeah. So I just don't know, it feels a bit just weird throwing that in now. Uh yeah, so my dad died, which was um pretty grim. Don't know how really to just throw that in there. Um So Owen took some much needed time off work and I would like it, Agitpod listeners, if you would write in and urge Owen to take <laughs> more time off work in the future, the man needs more of a break. So that's what happened. We say And that. we'll just segue on. We will, but I just want to say actually might as well. Why not just you know, just big plug to my dad. He was a big influence on me in terms of his socialism. He was he was a committed Trotskyist for, for most of his life, but he he fought for socialism, he fought for workers' rights, he was a trade union shop steward. Um, and I wouldn't be, for better or for worse, the man I am today and everything I do and believe in, you know, has, has so much to do with my dad. So that's enough of that now, we don't have to carry on with that. Oh, very nice. Right. So, and he did do quite well with her, and I rarely say nice things uh, about you, but he you did know. do, he do can, all right. He can take credit for the for the good bits, and I'll, I'll just take the bad bits. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. What a tribute. So... Very, very exciting. If we're going to come back, Agitpod, we might as well come back roaring with an absolute kick-ass guest. Please, comrades, combabes, comrogues, give a very warm welcome to the legend, the hero, the... Something else, come on. You've got to do it in three. Woman. <laughs> Ash Sarkar. Well, you may recognise from this week's Question Time, where she took Brandon Lewis to task... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised, actually, now, you know, you're now a celeb, that you've managed to deign to take yourself to our, our modest little little podcast. Well, you're lucky that I've got very low self-esteem and I crave your validation, Owen, <laughs> so it's a pleasure to be here today. That's Woo! where we get all our guests on, to be honest, don't we? I was actually like, when are they going to ask me on? Bit rude. Um, but yeah, long-time listener, first-time caller. Thanks for having me on. I was texting my mum and I was like, finally, I'm on Agitpod. Yeah, in your face, Dimblebee. So what we'll do from now on is just undermine the confidence of our potential guests and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. We are the um, pickup artists of the podcast world. Don't Google that if you don't know what it means. You don't want to know. Yeah, you really don't. Uh, so uh, question time. It was quite the debut. Uh, you did absolutely kick ass. Thank and you. on Twitter... Uh, went down like an absolute storm. Brandon Lewis, I love what's happened. Just it's worth reflecting on this because I think it was amazing. Uh, uh, just what's happened. Brandon Lewis is the chair of the Conservative Party, and his pin tweet was what was it? The so his pin tweet is after I challenged him on the government's record on Yarl's Wood because a question came up. So just in case you didn't watch it, I mean you should have watched it. Shame on you. But Brandon Lewis was a fellow guest. On Question Time with Ash. Chair the Tory party. And he used to be Immigration Minister, which is what I was um, taking him to task over. So basically, in Yarswood Immigration Removal Centre, the Home Office detain a great many number of asylum seekers, many of whom whose uh, cases are still under review. It's something like... And it's women only in Yarswood as well, isn't it? Um, there are some families there as well. I think there are some men, but it is overwhelmingly women. There's also um, some young people there as well. Something like 80% of 
people who are detained in an immigration removal centre will not be deported. They will be released um, back into society at large. Anyway, so a question came up about Syria and I was like, well, why don't we have a look at how this country treats refugees? And Brandon Lewis, being an immigration minister, so he definitely knows better, just turned around and was like, we don't detain asylum seekers. There's an entirely different process for that. So they won't be at Yarlswood. And it was just the most barefaced lie. But isn't the Home Office policy sort of detention first and then you go through a process? I thought that's what the detention action charity... I'm sure said that it's like the default setting is to detain people if they arrive in this country seeking asylum. Yeah, the default response is certainly detention. But it's also really unevenly applied. So if you're applying to change your visa status, for instance, and maybe, I don't know, you're an Australian bartender, the likelihood is you are not going to end up at Yarl's Wood Immigration Removal Centre. If maybe... Um, you're Somali or you're Pakistani and maybe you came here on one visa and that ran out and then you were applying to change and maybe that didn't work out and your case is still under review, then your chances are exponentially increased of finding yourself in an immigration removal centre. So how it works is intensely <clears throat> racialized. I picked him up on Twitter about it. It was outrageous that he firmed this lie. And then I think in response to that, and bearing in mind it's the same weekend that, like, you know, the vice party Vice chair baby. for you which will come on to ben bradley uh the uh i think the, the, the now becoming the mascot of the labor party's national campaign but anyway, carry on. i really <laughs> think we need to start a campaign of like keep ben bradley yeah. like because he's a gift we like, will come on to this because it's honestly it's just I mean, it's the wider thing about tory smears but yeah t- brandon lewis so what did he say it was like about the lies of the left yeah the lies of the left it doesn't matter how often you like repeat or retweet them it doesn't make it any more true or accurate and i was just like <laughs> Bitch, you just fully, like, firmed a lie that flies in the face of your whole government's policy and, like, ongoing action. And so we're still beefing over that. Um, we'll see how that goes. But I just... It's it's mad. It's like someone turning around and saying, like, the sky is pink, black is white, up is down, and firming that. And because they speak from the position of authority, they can hold it down. So real bonding took place on the Question Time panel, as we can see. But it is amazing how far we've come because you had this panel of the old kind of establishment, effectively. In, you know, Tory establishment, you had a Tory journalist and all the rest of it. And to have somebody who could be introduced as a as a as a luxury communist on BBC Question Time just shows we've gone we have gone far, haven't we? We actually now have a, a much wider range of left voices, nowhere near enough. But it does show now, given what's happened in politics, given, you know, all those struggles that happened before 2015 in terms of the student movement, in terms of anti-racism movement, in terms of UK uncut, in terms of disabled people against the cuts, all of that then fed into what happened within the Labour Party and then that fed into the general election. And now politics has, you know, transformed so much despite the barriers, the institutional barriers, the systemic barriers of the mainstream media. It's like they're trying to hold a flood back, but bits of, you know, flooding through. You can tell I'm right. Detritus. But it just, it's exciting, though, isn't it? Like, we have people, you know, we do have, you know, the fact now we've, on Question Time, we've had, you know, we've had you, we're going to have undoubtedly other voices going on Question Time. I mean, the thing is, is that I think that this does happen, like, maybe every decade or so, is that you you have, like, um, a personnel refresh in the commentary or in, or in media. And generally that happens when there's a shift in politics that needs to reflect and i think that this is like a kind of interesting question i like for you guys as well so there's a kind of turnover in the commentary and kind of happening slowly slowly but 
Is it a case of we're changing those structures or are those structures changing us? That is a good question. I think like when you're in the media, when you're like commentating in the media as the three of us are, you do you do self-censor quite a lot once you've been in it for a while because there is definitely an established group of commentators and journalists who have a very set idea about what the etiquette is, how you should behave, what you should say. And they all think that we should be nice to one another as well and they sort of treat Um, politics like a parlor game and it's quite hard to be in that group of people and to sort of keep your kind of spark and to keep your kind of what got you there because if you transgress they do come after you Mm -hmm. you know you Mm -hmm. know that yourself you've Mm. been in the daily mail i've been in the daily mail you know like it it can be a little bit scary and you're sort of made to feel a bit like intimidated Mm -hmm. if you don't sort of behave in the in the sort of way that the establishment expects you to and i think it can be. You, you do sort of feel as though your shine can be rubbed off. But I think the ways around that, I think, I mean, just thinking of my own mistakes, the mistakes I've made, is that it's just very important to always try and be as linked to the wider, broader movements all the time as possible, that we see ourselves as activists who manage somehow to sneak in and get... I mean, I know it's not as simple as that, you know, sneak in and get a platform. Obviously, clearly in my own case, I'm a... A, a, I was going to say a white straight man. I forgot I was gay. But you know, <laughs> what, I mean? you know, you know what I mean there. Assimilationism and I, I, is a hell yeah. of a drug. And I might have gone to a northern combat. I went to Oxford and so on. But, but, but you know, I always saw myself as part of a movement and, and, and tried to somehow link, you know, the, uh, my writing to those broader movements. But the danger is, is obviously if that group think in the media and the, and the press and the, the big pressure you're put under uh, to conform to a degree. And I think... Now we've got more writers and and, 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 and and people who can appear on TV and write in the mainstream media. We've just got to basically, you know, and I think this is happening, is is, is support each other and have solidarity um, and, you know, constantly be there for each other, but also to always just be part of those of, of those movements and, and link everything we do to those broader struggles, I suppose. And that's a, count, a counterbalance to the kind of suffocating nature of of the bourgeois press and media yeah one of a better term when before i definitely feel like before the the election the general election i especially in the run-up to the campaign i basically only said positive things about labor during the campaign Mm -hmm. because you know why would i say negative things about labor when i wanted people to vote for them but it was really really difficult because they were like 24 points behind in the polls and I remember a couple of times going on TV and saying Labour can win this, and, you know, Labour's got a really fighting chance and Labour's great and everybody should vote Labour. And then feeling really upset when I came off TV, feeling like everyone's just going to think that I'm a crank. And, you know, having the other people in the studio treat you as though you were mad, basically. Um, whereas now, because I'm so aware that there are millions of people mm. in the country that mm-hmm. agree with me and that voted Labour... Now I don't. I care a lot less about what those people in the studio think exactly. of me because exactly. I think you're the ones that are out of touch. Actually, I was right. I, sh- I should have known that. And the other thing I think is good if you're um, a commentator to sort of feel less scared is um, don't use Twitter. That's the other thing I think I've learned. Oh, see, I would be. I'm like just lean into it, like just lean into the like pit of misery and be like, rom, 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 I just need more. <laughs> I just like mm, like hook it to my veins. I think like that point about like well, hang on, who's out of touch and who's deluded? It's not me, it's you guys thinking that politics can say the same once economic and social conditions 
like no longer match up with that set of politics exactly. anymore. Like that's the delusion. I think the other thing, and this has really changed for me, and I think this has kind of helped with feeling like, hang on, I don't have to assimilate into this and I can talk the way I talk and I can say what I mean and I can really back it up, even if it's sometimes something that's like just a bit mad because I've gotten bored of repeating the same same things. I'm like, oh, fuck it, just make wearing my Rolex the national anthem. Is who the people are right and who like britain is is not who the establishment are telling us the people are or who britain is and actually the tactic of like get people out to vote who wouldn't normally vote was really quite successful in the last election so why not double down on that so i don't have to speak like middle england and speak to middle england all the time Mm -hmm. like i can speak the way I speak and I can speak to and on the behalf of the kinds of people I grew up with or like see around me and and like reflect like that kind of slightly spiky ethnic minority Twitter humor and just go and just lean into it I, I think I, th- I think that kind of um has its own value as well but you're right about that disconnect though I mean I think the problem if we took a look at the centrist commentary I mean it is 90 stasis um, they were a lot of them were embedded in the whole New Labour appara- uh, apparatus. Some of them actually worked for New Labour, but mm. they were very much in those. Philip Collins, who's a common columnist for the Times, was uh, Blair's one of Blair's top speechwriters. Just an example. He's a preeminent mm. centrist commentator, agitating sometimes for a new party and a centrist party to be formed, and all the rest of it. And, and many of them were just in that milieu. You know, they might not have been signed up, paid up uh, press officers or anything like that, but they were very much embedded. And, and it's just interesting because obviously in the 1990s, centrism, so-called centrism, was on the march everywhere. In Jospin in France, Gerhard Schroeder in Germany, the Clintons in the White House, across Spain, the Netherlands, and, and obviously here in Britain. And, and it's just, you know, that was a different country. And we live in a period of profound economic and social dislocation. The working age population has suffered the worst squeeze in wages of any industrialised country other than Greece, the worst according to the IFS since the 1750s, that's the Institute of Physical Studies. And, and, and it's just that, that's the problem. Is you, It's almost like, sometimes if you look at the commentary, it's like, um, to a degree, you know, like when you chop a tree down and it's like the, yeah. the rings and like, this mm. is how they're kind of representative of that particular era. And it's just fascinating how embedded they remain in that, you know, they are products of, of that time. But, but we, live in a, we live in such a tumultuous period of time and and it's just fascinating, you know, but the difficulty is, I'm afraid, is, you know, they were in ascendancy and they are very well connected. They're doubling down, they're entrenched, they look after each other. Um, and that that's one of the formidable blocks that exist in terms of getting left voices into the media, into into the press, uh, which is, is you get those very entrenched figures who are aware that, you know, political reality and their analysis are now on an absolute collision course, but are determined to protect their position which is a natural human response but that means doubling down and blocking the left but i think like that so thinking about the media ecology and how it's functioning because the right have actually got this down to a t like and this is something that as the left we're trying to think about how do you respond to a certain news story or a certain moment and you think about how the right have got that conveyor belt from like Guido to, through to like the Sun or the Express and then mm. up into the Mail and then the Telegraph and things I want to explain to our, our listeners what I keep what saying Guido is I keep but, saying Guido um, and like, but I also don't want anyone to go on it <laughs> Guido Fawkes is basically a um, a right wing muck raking website which is famous for ruining the careers of several politicians well at least that's what it used to be famous for but it but it's sort of um, 
It's star has fallen in recent years, but it is part of the right wing ecosystem. It's shtick, as Paul Staines, who's the head of Guido, put it to me, is uh, they see democracy as a means of giving the have-nots power over the haves. So what you have to do is undermine people's faith in democracy, and that means doing the whole, all politicians are in it for themselves, and therefore you you use this reactionary anti-politics to consolidate the power of... Except their targets are often not politicians, it's just people or outriders and it's like picking on like you know very niche things but then sometimes like trying to convey about it up and then it does sort of make its way into uh, mainstream well-regarded press and they do that very well i think the left hasn't necessarily gotten that yet but i think that there are ways to work on it but i think like looking at it bigger than politics and kind of thinking about it culturally is that i think people have felt so underserved and so you've got um, outlets like Galdem who have sort of looked at the composition of fashion, art, music, and, you know, also politics, and said, like, this is ridiculous. And it's like, you know, women of colour who are putting out, like, a really, really slick operation. And even, like, at the very top, so, like, the new editor of British Vogue, I think, Edwards Enifal? I think that's his name. But, like, Edward Edinfor, like, for his first issue of Vogue, is bringing in, like, Naomi Campbell and then also, like, Skepta and all these other figures. Um, and so I think that there is a kind of cultural tipping point in publishing at the moment. Um, I think political media has been, has been much slower to move on it. I think that's been a lot more entrenched. Yeah, that's And I guess true. to it's, like, yeah, in vested interest, true. right? <laughs> so in that summer of 2015, and then the whole thing was, do you know what's going to happen now? A dossier the size of the Australian subcontinent has been prepared by CCHQ, that's Conservative Central Headquarters. And there was this idea that during the general election campaign, they threw everything at Jeremy Corbyn, you know, pictures of him at Butlins with the Al-Qaeda elite, or, you know, he's going to nationalise everyone's mother in coordination with Bin Laden. And that was going to just destroy him, and Labour would end up with three MPs, if that. And um, during the general election campaign, they did throw everything at Jeremy Corbyn. And, you you know, uh, classic was the Daily Mail a few days before, 14 pages about, you know, Corbyn, lieutenants, links to terrorism. terrorism and all of that. And then, obviously, that didn't pan out so well because Labour got 40% of the vote. And, you know, obviously, before that, they self-appointed themselves the kingmakers. It was the son what won it, as I said, in 990. So that really broke... And they were very... The the, the um, tabloid press in this country were, were really, like, on a high after Brexit. They really thought that they'd kind of made the leave vote happen. Mm. Exactly. They, so they and expected they, to repeat that in the general election. And, and were, I expected them to repeat it as well, to be honest. Like, I was a real doom and gloom naysayer. And that's, yeah, that's because I, I couldn't recognise the emotion of hope when I felt it. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. like, like physically, I can recognise it. So, I had that sense that that would be. Effective. Do you know? I was like with that hope. It's like every time, like you felt these pangs of hope. I got. I remember going to Pat Battersea's campaign for Marshall Godova, who's a brilliant new Labour MP. Not a new Labour MP as a Blairite, by the way. He's a new new with a small N. Socialist uh, Labour MP, by the way. Um, and I was there with this massive crowd, and it was like this amazing atmosphere on a sunny day. And I was like, hope was breaking out. I was like, stamp on it, stamp on it, wipe it out, destroy it. Anyway, um, but what what's fascinating is they tried doing this rerun, uh, which was this idea that Jamie Corbyn was linked to the Czechoslovak communist uh, so-called regime, the Stalinist regime of Czechoslovakia, which fell in 1989, uh, based on this diplomat who's just like, honestly, what was he? What was he on? Um, oh my god, it was like Live Aid and Man- Mandela Aid. He, he did apparently. It was yeah, like he said that he organized an interview with like Live Aid. 
with like Czech Rick James. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. just like so inflated. Um, like the mewling in the back is. Um, it's 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 Kier's. Yeah, Rick James saying, "How dare you?" And, and Kier actually has been sent my cat by Czechoslovakian intelligence in a time machine in order to sabotage our podcast to destroy the left. Uh, not destroy. The, well, who knows what he's doing? Well, that claim is about as fantastic Cre- as all of the stuff that that guy was it's saying. It's about as credible. Yeah. But they did this whole thing and they threw everything at it. It was the Daily Mail, it was the Express, the it was the Telegraph. Uh, the Sun. The Sun, obviously, the Sun in a big way. And it did no work. And, and the problem with it, and this is why I'm like, you need to be a bit more strategic, lads, is it, it now is undermined. It shows that those smear campaigns, which in the past were like, that will work. Mm. Obviously, that's that's blunted that. But also now, whenever they try a smear campaign, it's going to look ludicrous. But what's interesting is the Tories then jumped on in it. Now, I'm doing this thing with Momentum, this unseat campaign. I'm targeting Tory seats with marginal... Um, to call it a Tory seat is actually a slur, Owen. <laughs> Do you know what? Mm. This is so funny. Explain that, Ash, because it's really oh funny. Oh, my God. So what was it? You were saying... Um... For the council elections, like, you know, let's go for Wandsworth and kind of, you know... Right-wing council. Um, displace this uh, right-wing council. And uh, Nimco Ali, who's like Women's Equality Party slash well, closet she, Tory. Well, I mean, when we say closet, she supported Zach Goldsmith. Uh, she's a big supporter of Boris Johnson and... Uh, and It's a glass uh, closet, and she said, it's a glass closet. <laughs> she said she was going to go and campaign for Wandsworth Tories because I called them right-wing, which was outrageous. That was a slur. Oh. But I also just so think your I... politics are so flimsy that all it takes is one person upsetting you and you're like, right, I'm going to go campaign for the other side. But, like maybe But then what happened politics. was, I was like, as a joke, I was like, wow, I mean, calling the Tories right-wing is now a slur. This is... And then she replied by calling me a fucking prick. Which is only cool when I say it. Yeah, and it might be accurate, but it was, you know, on this particular, <laughs> factually, it was accurate, but not linked to this, is what I was trying to say. <laughs> but anyway, so what happened then anyway? So we did this unseat campaign, and the Tory MPs all piled in on it because we're going to un- do this unseat Ben Bradley uh, campaign in Mansfield, who is best known as a Tory MP who talks about calling for unemployed wasters, in quotes, to have vasectomies, uh, who uh, called for the police to play splat the chav and police brutality and said uh, public sector workers didn't know they were born. And they all piled in because they're like... I'm a, a call for more police brutality after Mark Duggan was shot and killed in Tottenham. Oh, that's a critical point. So during the, during the riots in 2011, after Mark Duggan was, was shot dead, exactly. Anyway, but then they all piled in, because I, I said he stands up for privileged interests because of what he said in his voting record. And then this Tory activist said, Owen Jones went to Oxford and worked in Parliament, and he calls this... And I was like, what? I wasn't attacking his background or whatever. Uh, and then all these Tory MPs piled on in. And then I got all this homophobic abuse, like, you little gay prick sort of stuff. So I just did a thing going like, oh, this is good. Cheer- these are the sorts of things your followers are cheering on. Then this Tory activist retweeted that with, ha-ha. And then Mark... Uh, no, Ben Bradley then replied to it going... Uh, going to it, ha-ha, you're famous now, in response to that. So then this account called Far Right Watch said... Uh, in response said... Um, uh, cheering on homophobic abuse. That's not a good look. And then he responded, saying, uh, well, get your priorities straight. The leader of the opposition is uh, selling, uh, selling, selling spat British intelligence and secrets to communist spies. So this was inadvertently because you, of you because laid of, the groundwork through it, because, for the libel. But what was funny about it was it was the Tories trying to use social media. It's about the going, yeah, the left is taking over social media. We'll get stuck in. The two things they achieved was 
boosting the number of people who turn up to the Unseat campaign. We've got loads, by the way. And also a libel, uh, libelous tweet, which has landed Ben Bradley with a rather substantial amount of money going to a food bank and a homeless outreach centre in his own constituency. And also... Um, a humiliating uh, public apology. So, but what I was going to ask, because I babble too long now, is doesn't this show that the, that whole smear campaign, which they normally go would work? Is... I mean, I think it was flawed from the start. So the problem with the story is that it was out, it was so outlandish, and it was pitched against what people think about Jeremy Corbyn. So even if you are, you know dyed-in-the-wall Tory voter who, you know, thinks that Jeremy Corbyn is pally with, like, Hamas and the IRA and all the rest of it, you would have a hard time believing that he sold state secrets because people think of him as having integrity, bordering on the point of being rigid. So I, so I think that to land that would, was an uphill struggle from the get-go. And also the source just lacked all credibility. Um, it was just so easily debunked. And so you had a smear campaign that was not robust <coughs> enough to um, stand up to the kind of really heavy media onslaught that the Tories wanted for it. And then on top of that, you had just a really astonishing amount of incompetence on the part of Conservatives. Like, if I was Theresa May, I would be fucking fuming right now. I would be calling in, like, Ben Bradley, Ben Wallace, and Gavin Williamson, and all the rest of it, and be like, you had one job, which is to make people feel paranoid and uh, mistrustful of Jeremy Corbyn, and to just really sell this idea that, you know, he can't be trusted, like, with the state apparatus. And what did you do? dingbats you libeled yourself you made these indefensible claims that um what's his name stephen baker couldn't back up on oh, yeah. um a Tor- this week he's a tory mp where he went on tv and yeah he's the one with the brexit brief and he just got absolutely torn to pieces by andrew neil who every so often is just like he's like a you know sleeping male lion who for the most part is like you know doesn't really do anything and then occasionally rips into a bison so this was like the moment <laughs> of like ripping into the yeah. bison um, and it was it was utterly humiliating. It was worse than if they hadn't done anything. Oh yeah, like, definitely. You know, yeah. if they'd have just sort of let this like rumble on in the press and then said kind of you know like nudge towards it, then maybe that would have been more effective. But it's because they all piled in with this glee, and then um, so Sun Tzu in the Art of War right says that like most defeats come from overreach, and this was a classic case of overreach. Yeah. Everyone should read Sun Tzu. Um, Genuinely, that's. That does make me want to... I'm going to order it right now. The art what, of war. What do you think that the, the impact of this will have on public trust in the media? Because one thing that I worry about with... You know, we've seen lots of scandals over the last 10 years, like crises, like the financial crises, the expenses scandal, the hacking scandal, like scandals within the police. And it, you know, we all kind of react to them at the time. But I sort of often worry that, like, it's actually really damaging for the fabric of society for people to lose so much faith in our institutions without building any alternative institutions and i wonder like do you have any thoughts about like the long-term impact of like this kind of botched smear job basically yeah i mean i think that over time and i was thinking about this a lot today because i've been thinking about conspiracy theories um like everyone's got their favorite conspiracy theory um but i was thinking about conspiracy theories and how in particular um, and how how conspiracy theories gain traction at different points in history. So I was kind of thinking about like anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, anti-communist conspiracy theories, and then also 
the kind of resurgence of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, particularly post 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I think that they... At the moment with George Soros, there's a lot of it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And which then, the right-wing know, press yeah. died in. Like, re- you know, that's like kind of like classic 1930s template anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And I think... Just for those of you who don't know, George Soros is a billionaire who funds political campaigns and he's also Jewish. And the right-wing press and lots of far-right organisations have tried to suggest that it, he's part of a Jewish conspiracy... Yeah, essentially, like, kind of a wealthy... um, Like, one of the classic tropes of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory is that here is this very rich Jewish person or people, and they've got a network which isn't tied to any nationality or allegiance. No loyalty, and then all they're trying to do is destabilise. Essentially, ethno-nationalist projects, so it always kind of goes hand-in-hand with, like, the thing that is trying to be constructed, and it, like, tends to be this, like... Like, like Hungary is a... Like, yeah. Hungary, which is an authoritarian regime, and what they do is delegitimise all opposition, basically, by claiming it's George Soros, uh, you know, who's the puppet master, and they're closing down all these George Soros institutions and using the law to go after them. And so, like, conspiracy theories are able to thrive, because on the one hand, you are... Um, you've got, like, emanating from the centre of power... A narrative which others and renders alien alien these kind of like internal threats, and so you think of them as being like behind the conspiracy or the architects of the conspiracy. But also, conspiratorial thinking happens when you know that there are conspiracies, and so whether that conspiracy is something like um, a a uh, collusion of vested interests between uh, the press and the governing party or whether that um, conspiracy is a uh, sense of something being rigged against you. That, that conspiratorial thinking is the product of something here isn't quite right, but there isn't actually kind of media ecology, which is nurturing critical thinking, which would give you the tools to like grapple with that differently. So I think that in other points in our recent political history, yeah, you have had these scandals which have nurtured conspiratorial thinking because it's been something that's come to light or, you know, a kind of botched hush-hush operation and that's just left people feeling like, aha, you see, Mm. this is how they do you. Mm. But in this case, you've had the botched smear operation, the... Um, unveiling of this kind of, um, you know, deeply um, embedded network of interests, um, like political interests, ideological interests, um, you know, a, a kind of network that relies on, you know, mutual master misinformation. Um, and instead of it just being left there, you've got a political structure. And this is why I think Jeremy Corbyn played such a blinder in the response to this, which said, and hang on, here are productive ways to hit back. So Leveson too, like, let's actually take on these vested interests. Look, we've got a political vehicle through which you can make yourself heard. So you've got all that sense of like, the system is broken, but actually you've got a vehicle for how to fix it or deal with it. So that's why I'm not actually that worried about it. I feel better than I did for a well, very long I mean, time. That's, that's good. It's true, though, isn't it? I mean, in terms of... I mean, I find it sometimes weird that it's almost like we entered this, like, alternative timeline, like, before everything was just shit and you woke up and, like, mm. well, what new shit stuff has happened in this world of shit? And then all of a sudden... It's, it's like, like Taylor Swift releases a new album. You're <laughs> like, no! <laughs> <laughs> and then every day it's like, doesn't it feel like Christmas? 
Doesn't it feel like Christmas? Can you sing it one please, someone? I don't, I don't know, know that, that song. song. It's Destiny's Child. They did a Christmas special. Oh, the Eight Days of Christmas. And then it went, like there we oh, go. Yeah, that one. Yeah. It's a great song. Do you recommend it for all? And, <laughs> but, um, but, right. Um, yeah, and then all of a sudden, and what I just thought, what's interesting about this is, is various things, which is firstly, they are absolutely terrified. They're petrified. The old social order of this country. They're also bewildered. I think that's another thing. Is they're not just terrified, they're like bewildered. It's like, you know. Um, there's an established rules in this country about the way that we do politics and the way that we do media and, and like Jeremy Corbyn just kind of strolled in and broke them all and, and they don't know how to react to him so they keep trying to apply him to the old system and it just doesn't work and they sort of they don't really know how to respond to him I think yeah, they're very bewildered exactly but I, what I find fascinating about it is I mean it's weird because actually privately some of them have these very weird you know they, they genuinely in a heartfelt way regard this as a revolutionary communist project in the making which it is, but no one's told anyone. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I was going to be like, is it? Yeah, <laughs> what? No, oh, boy, it really is Christmas. <laughs> but they think there'll be this revolutionary terror and all the rest of it. No, but what, what's fascinating is that we've had this order, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, that's governed this country for the last 40 years, which was so seeped in triumphalism, the end of the Cold War, you know, and I'm no apologist for Stalinist dictatorship, it was presented, there was the end of history, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, and, and, and then the Labour Party capitulated to neoliberal tenets, uh, trade union, the trade union movement was cowed and smashed. Uh, you know, those old working class, many working class communities, which were hubs and centres of resistance, were so atomised and fragmented and demoralised by the consequences of what happened that it just looked absolutely impossible for any re-emergence of anything that that threatened their project. And then to see the left for the first time in the Labour Party's history take power and assume leadership and then be on cusp, the cusp of power in Britain, to go from that utter being drunk, intoxicated on the triumphalism of the total vanquishing of any semblance of opposition to your project in this country, the near destruction, as you saw, the destruction of the Labour Party, you know, even as a flawed vehicle of modest reform, then re-emerge as a popular mass movement of, 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 of transformative and bit political and social and economic ambition, backed up by these, you know, these mobilised movements in various communities. It, it is obviously bewildering, but it does show now they are they, the old tools, the old weapons that the press and the media had to just take tear down a far more you know uh, centrist or so-called moderate. I don't accept these terms, but that's how they're presented. Uh, kind of Labour leader, and yet to have somebody who fights back and defeats them and drives them back, and to see no impact on public opinion. Indeed, the the opposite. To see your tactics discredited. So the next time you try and use them, they're seeing it is even less credible. I mean, they are like, we're, we're out of ammunition here, and they're coming for us, and our whole order is collapsing around us. What on earth are we going to do? Do but we I have think, any advice for them? But I think this is the thing, right, is that actually the crisis to uh, the dominant social order isn't Corbyn. It's not. It's a completely internal crisis. It's a product yeah, of agree. the economic conditions that mm. um, they oversaw. So I think that it's really... Corbyn is what is replacing a collapsed ideology. Yeah. He hasn't made it collapse. Yeah. That is something else. He, he, you know, he really, ha- he, he really hasn't. I, and sometimes, like, when you see the pictures of him moving with this um, serenity, <laughs> that I think of, like, the opening of Mulan, where, like, the granny's crossing the road, like, blindfolded, and she's got a cricket, 
and then everyone's like crashing into each other and she's just moving serenely and then like she makes it across mm. the road and everything else is in chaos is that yeah. Jeremy Corbyn sometimes reminds me of that in terms of the effect that he has but I think it's really instructive to return to some of the writings that were produced around 1979 um, with Thatcher coming in um, I really really recommend that everyone like Go back and read Stuart Hall if you haven't already. Like, read oh, yeah, The Great, great Moving Right Show. Like, read mm. Policing the Crisis. Read The Neoliberal Revolution, which he wrote. Um, but also on the other side, like read some Hayek. Hayek's a brilliant thinker. I completely disagree with him about everything, but he's one of the main architects of neoliberalism. Yeah. But the reason why I say, like, read Stuart Hall is because he has his finger on the pulse of how it's a change in political culture. But going back, actually, yeah. going to that point, do you think it's interesting looking back at that whole area of Stuart Hall and stuff? And they were pretty pessimistic at the time about mm. what was happening in terms of Thatcherite reaction and, and, and so on. I mean, I, I just think there were parallels in terms of the collapse of the post-war consensus and the way mm. the left responded, which was, well, the Labour Party. I mean, I don't want to make them synonymous, but in terms of either you double down and go, it's because we haven't made the arguments convincingly enough about this, the existing social democratic consensus or and or conceding ground to your enemies mm. in terms of you know everything on privatization eventually on, on on taxes on unions and that's what the Tories are kind of doing now they're kind of doing this thing where they're like we're not talking about free market economics enough and how great it is and then they're flitting over to actually there is something wrong with the way things are and we do need to build more social housing in, in rhetoric not in substance mm. tuition fees they are rip off as Theresa May said but then she won't offer anything that I mean, do you think there are... I don't know. I just think there are parallels between the collapse of the two, the disintegration. I, th I think there are... I think that... I mean, and that's why I'm saying it's so instructive because I think there are parallels, but I think that I'm wary of reading those parallels as like a pathway into mm. the future because I think complacency is really dangerous. Because yeah. I think that while we're at tipping point politics, the point is that tipping points can go either way. Yeah. So like you have to like, like put your shoulder to the wheel to make it go our way. But the reason why I say like, oh, read Stuart Hall is because I think that the task that's ahead of us is not about securing a parliamentary term for Corbyn. I think that's pretty much going to happen. It's about instituting a political paradigm shift. And it's about that shift in political culture. And that's what Stuart Hall was so great on, is that it was a complete transformation of how we thought about what politics was, what culture was, what economics were for, like what social policy should look like, um, our personal aspirations and sense of how we were going to live our lives and grow old, how our families would be organised. It was a new hegemony. And that's mm. the thing about like Stuart Hall is that, you know, he's a neo-Gramscian because he's using this Gramscian term hegemony which loosely means dominant ideology, but is so much more than that. It's it about... sort of permeates every part of your understanding of life. Yeah. It's what a gem, an ideology that influences the way that we understand everything, not just politics. You know, what you were saying there reminded me of what she said, economics is the method, so the aim is to change the soul. Mm. Anyway, speaking of political hegemony and tipping points, we've experienced a pretty big tipping point in this country recently with Brexit, which is... Been so, so much fun. So much fun, but also so much more than just a vote to leave the EU or not. It's also been a really, I think, a conversation about the kind of country that we live in and the kind of country that we want to live in. And on that note, Mr. Corbyn delivered a speech today, or yesterday, as this will probably come out the day after the speech, about um, uh, saying that Labour wants to stay in the customs union. So what is the customs union? Let's just kick off so, that. So the customs union is, everyone is a member of the customs union, that means it is a... Every, every member state of every the EU. Every member state, sorry, every member state. That means they don't have to pay 
custom tariffs. It's a custom tariff-free zone. With it, so you have the goods can circulate freely without custom checks and all the rest of it. And you have to have a common uh, custom tariff externally. So that means countries that aren't part of the customs union. Uh, where there are tariffs for goods coming in from those countries, every single member state has to agree on the same tariff with those particular countries, which means, in practice, that, that those trade deals can only be negotiated as one whole, not by individual states. So why then would we want to... Why would Brexiters want to leave the customs union? Because that just sounds like a big pain in the ass to me. So their position is, we're going global, baby. No, this wasn't some nativist, cynical project to whip up uh, xenophobia whilst pursuing free market dogma, uh, piggybacked on the back. Um, actually, what we're going to do is we're going to go and trade with China and India and and and, and have a big tra- the, the biggest trade deal with with Donald Trump and all the rest of it, but we're being prevented from doing so by the United States. The reason this is a stupid fantasy is various reasons. One is Europe is by far our biggest trading partner, so screwing up that with a load of, uh, you know, with a a tricky trade deal, which means tariffs is going to hurt the economy and we're not going to compensate with these other deals. Isn't it 44%? 44% of trade is done with Europe? I think it is, actually. It is. 44%. It is. Quite a lot. I read Labour's briefing notes today. That (laughs) is a fair whack. But the other problem is, of course, Ireland. We have this peace process, which... Uh, Most people in England don't understand. No, they don't. And um, I support United Ireland, but nonetheless... And 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 we might get it out of sheer incompetence. (laughs) A lot of things we're getting. The right are literally giving us all the things the left fought for in the 1960s, which is comical if you think about it. No, but so at the moment, uh, what you have is a... What's the name of a border where it's like... Soft, 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 no, but a border. Frictionless. Where, yes, frictionless border. Yeah, frictionless trade, and that's part of the Northern Ireland peace process. So you know, and and and, and we have free movement with Ireland and Britain anyway, uh, which is uh, predates free movement with the EU. It's good news for me because my daddy's Irish. So go on, I get that. So if I marry you, get a passport. I can get a passport. I am also going to get a passport. Sorry, suckers. I'm I'm staying. Do you want to marry me? Yeah, sure. Why not? I'm Sick. A, no, lots of Jew- <laughs> Jewish friends, and they're claiming German citizenship, which they can. Uh, and indeed Portuguese citizenship because of the expulsion of the Jews in the 16th century. And there's a means for... Wow, so literally like from the Alhambra decree. Yeah, literally from that. And Mm. part of that is you can claim Portuguese citizenship. Not me. But anyway, so that board... But the problem is, if you then end up where Ireland, the Republic thereof, is in the customs union, but Northern Ireland isn't, that has to mean a hard border because you'll have to do massive customs checks... But then that would completely, fatally undermine. undermine the peace process. So there's no real It's way. fine. Peace process was easy. It didn't take long. No, peace process. Died. It's fine. Peace process. Yeah, it's fine. So Corbyn has said that again. we need to be a customs union, albeit one where Britain has influence over the trading arrangements that the EU decides with external parties uh, and, will, and will, you know, not just be a rule taker. Uh, but that is a massive distinguishing thing with the Tories who are like, we're not having a customs union of any description. So, I mean, there we I go. Th- it's kind of weird, right? I mean, like, the Conservatives are weird. I'm sure I'm not the first person in history to have said that, like, Tories no, are, weird. are weird. Do you know that senior Conservatives, before the election, called Theresa May mummy? I That's found weird. that very weird. That is I've weird. seen some of the... <laughs> <laughs> it's like... It's like it's like people that went to public school, I think, came out and I'm like, boy, you really should have some... Let's slow down and talk therapy. about this Let's whole thing that's happening. Let's this box of frogs that is your mind. Yeah. Um, but it's very weird because on the one hand, I think there is like a tacit 
acknowledgement that unless you want to just completely like leng the UK economy and if you want to have things like I don't know be able to like export food or import flowers right things that there's you know a time window on that you need like frictionless um, movement of goods and there's this kind of like delicately brokered um, consensus between the government and the EU that in the transition period you would have membership of the customs union and access to the single market and then you've just got Brexiters being like yeah see about that no yeah, yeah. like it like it's really bizarre yeah um and one of the things that I can't get over and this is something which kind of came up during that question time is like the bullishness where hard Brexiters think the UK is in relation to the rest of the world, which is like, well, we don't need a customs union. Oh, we don't, we don't need this stuff at all. And the EU need us more than we need them. So we're in a stronger negotiating position to which my response is like, but how though? Yeah, yeah. Like, and it seems to me to be like really caught up with like imperial nostalgia um, and a kind of amnesia of just like, what happened around the time of decolonization, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the British economy was so weak that it was known as the sick man of Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like a real um, economic and uh, political like wound on the political, on, on the imagination. And so there's a kind of like arching back to like empire to the point where I think like there was a memo that called like the proposed trade deals with Africa, the post-Brexit trade deals, empire 2.0, mm-hmm. but also yeah. an unwillingness to like interrogate what that really meant. And also... An unwillingness to think about how Britain's more recent geoeconomic dominance was constructed through membership of this trading bloc. Like, it's really weird. It's not just Tories that are weird. Britain is weird. Can I, can I just say that Britain is weird? I find Britain weird. It is. We, we are a neurotic country when yeah. it comes to that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think I, I've often thought that a lot of these sort of um, big political things that happen at the moment. I, I know it's like fashionable to link Brexit and Trump together and I kind of hate doing that, but I do think that what's happening there is that there is a, a sense in the country of the citizens of that country of their declining status within the world. Mm-hmm. And there's something about voting for something like Brexit, um, which is about reclaiming that status and a, a kind of insecurity that comes with being part of a declining empire, basically. I mean, there's a fancy word for this, uh, which Roger Griffin uses in his 1991 book, The Nature of Fashionism. The Griffster. The Griffster. Roger Griffin. Uh, palingenetic yeah, okay. ultranationalism. Oh, hello. Say yeah. it again. Come on. Palingenetic ultranationalism. Why hasn't a band been formed with that name? That's I think that question. sounds like a house DJ collective. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like somewhere in Rotterdam, like monkey techno is being made. Am I going to hear palingenetic capitalism? I've got it wrong. Palingenetic ultranationalism. Palingenetic ultranationalism play tonight. Are you kidding me? Palingenetic ultranationalism is. Roger Griffin's idea is like it's the bedrock of fascism, but not all palingenetic ultranationalism is fascism. But the other way around, but it is. all fascism relies in some way on palingenetic ultranationalism, which is the sense of the rebirth of a people by overthrowing um, a dominant social order, and it's and it's the people um, constituted through nation and not class, and that's why it's ultranationalism. But it's the sense of for too long you have lacked the sovereignty or the control mm. or the um, self-ownership or the pride and now we're giving that back to you by overthrowing this decadent or corrupt social order and so one of the things that like was really striking about Corbyn's speech I found because for s- so many of the Brexit related speeches the underlying mood has been palingenetic ultranationalism take back control I mean 
in terms of just the politics of it, I think, firstly, in terms of internal Labour politics, I think it's quite interesting because, you know, there are genuinely, I mean, it's always a mistake to think all oh, your enemies are just don't have any genuine beliefs or principles at all. It's all cynical manoeuvring. There are genuinely Labour people like, this Brexit is obviously a calamity. Leaving a single market and all the customs union is a disaster for the economy. But there is clearly a faction of Labour MPs who are weaponising Brexit as a convenient political tool to confront and undermine the leadership. And obviously that, I think, makes it harder for them because there's, no one can now argue that Labour and the Tories have the same Brexit position. It's just, that's a, just a fantasy. I think the other though is just, in terms of the Tory dynamics, there are about 15 Tory MPs who could conceivably rebel over this and on Brexit. Will and they, though? could that, I mean, the, the question is, could that end up with a, a situation which could bring down the government? I mean, I suppose I always look at that and think it is conceivable, but they are so scared of a Corbyn government coming to power. Mm. The also, mechanism would, of that happening why is would quite someone, why would Why would like an MP like vote themselves out of power? Like, I just don't see that happening. Well, they, at, at the moment, they think it won't happen because the fixed-term Parliament Act means if the government uses a significant vote... No, I think if we vote... If the government... If but just quickly on that, if they it, lose a significant vote, normally it goes to a vote of no confidence. Mm. But that wouldn't happen under fixed-term Parliament. I think the political pressure would be such that it, it could trigger an election. Um, but I think... One thing I think is really important for, for me to let... I think I often feel like it's important to stress is that I think often, like, people who are Remain voters and who think that Brexit is a bad idea will often sort of suggest that people who voted Leave didn't really know what they were voting for. And I think there's like two important things to remember about that is that first of all, actually, a lot of the analysis of Leave voters is correct. Like they, you know, I'm thinking particularly of like working class Leave voters, they have been screwed over, they have been abandoned, they're right to be angry about that. But also, a lot of Remain voters don't know how the EU works. Like, could anybody really realistically who vote, voted Remain told you before the referendum what Article 50 was? Do most people in this country, regardless of how they voted, know who their MEP is? I think this sort of idea that, you know, it like leave voters are ignorant and voted because they were sort of hoodwinked into it. And Remain voters are sort of informed and considered. I'm not sure I think that's true. I think that it's, you know, partly about two different visions of how we want to, how we sort of see the country and, and different analyses of, of what's happening. Well, let's remember that the main reason why people voted for Brexit was to bring down immigration, with the idea being that the presence of immigrants mm. depresses wages and also it kind of transforms the, the cultural landscape into one that's unrecognisable. Has there been enough pushback on that from the left? No. Hell No. Absolutely none. What we have is a anti-racist discourse which is still hinged around ideas of offence. And as anti-racists, like this is kind of me talking to anti-racist people of colour, is like we need to become much more ambitious and uh, rediscover um, that terminology like institutional racism and, and really think concretely about that. We also need to escape the academy. Um, I'm done with decolonizing curriculums. I want to interrogate Britain's colonial legacies, like mm. on our streets, in our banks, like, you know, on, in our supermarkets. Um, and one of the things that we also need to do is start tying, is start discrediting some of those core leave myths that immigration depresses wages. Mm -hmm. So since the Brexit result, we have seen falls in migration here like we simply have because who wants to move here now when the mm. when the um uh circumstances are, are so precarious we need to start saying to people like look you voted leave to bring down immigration that's happened 
have your wages gone up? No, last month real real terms wages fell by 0.3%. And I think that's from the TUC. And we're not tying those things together. Mm. And I think there's a reticence on the left to kind of poke the sleeping bear of like xeno racism in this country. Because we've gone, well, hang on, we're talking about Brexit and we're not actually kind of talking about migration and that's good enough for us. But no, I think we've got to like pivot onto the front foot. Um, Right, yeah, we really are coming towards the end here. We've covered quite a lot. But yeah, on that, just quickly though, I do think actually, you know, now that the left's position, the Labour Party, is pretty secure, if we look back to Thatcherism, it had an ecosystem of outriders who would always push further than the leadership was prepared to go. Think tanks, columnists, backbenchers. And I think Corbynism needs that. And I think this is one example. I mean, I wrote this piece about how it needs to go further on tax. That actually... Also doesn't... climate change. Climate change, of course, another example. I mean, tax, Labour could go so much further. Also making Stormzy culture secretary. E.g. I mean, that's a given. Come on. Exactly. And I just think this could be another example on, on, on taking a much further line and pushing back. So that's what I wanted to show. Concrete anyway. antagonisms. Concrete antagonisms. Loving it. Anyway, on that um, ex- vocabulary expanding note. Yeah, has everyone been taking notes? Because I feel like we've been discussing courtesy of apps and pretty, pretty... Deep shit. Pretty deep shit, yeah. Deep I mean, shit. I'm a university lecturer, so really I'm scabbing at the moment because there is a strike on. This is not scabbing. Oh, I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to do no intellectual labour. Actually, I'm not because my university's not in this dispute. But if like I was supposed to delete all intellectual like activity from my mind, I should have just come on here and been like. Bleh. That does remind me though. Please do go and support university staff who are striking. Go to your local campus, stand on those picket lines. Go, yeah, hell yeah. Dividing all tactics are failing. Polls show students back them in their struggle. Uh, against the attack on pensions, against marketization, we're going to get rid of tuition fees, we're going to transform education, that's going to happen the end. So screw you, government. And if you can, donate to the strike fund, because lots of the people on strike are fractional staff or associate lecturers or um, PhD staff, so they're losing what very little income they have. It's not, um, you know, senior academics with cushy salaries as people who are very precarious. So donate to the strike fund. Out of the strike fund, people get, I think, 50 quid a day. So um, that's just covering basics like food and travel. So donate if you're able. And blame the government and universities UK, not the university workers. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. Ash, you are a rock star. Thank you for having me. Do you sound like someone's embarrassing dad? Uh, but you've been, um, yeah, you've been ace. Everyone follow her on Twitter. Just don't look at AOCism. Yeah, that was just like a dumb nickname, which is stuck, so. Yeah, as it's embarrassing enough for all of us, but that's what we've got, so work with it. I've been Owen Jones. I'm not sure if we've ever used this as an exit line, but I have We been. did with Ed Miliband. <laughs> yeah, we I've, yeah. I've... And we, we faded out to steps. We're not going to do that this time. We but could fade out to the Destiny's Child Eight Days of Christmas song. We're going to look at copyright issues. If we in ha- February. Yeah. yeah. Why not? <laughs> people feel miserable in February. It's cold, but without the festive bit. So let's, you know, cheer people up. Uh, we will be back very promptly this time. We're back in action. Big round of applause to Ash. And we will see you soon. No, we won't. But we'll, you'll hear from us. Bye. 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 But I don't worry about a thing. Cause I know nothing's going to be alright.